We're going to dive in here. This is just a little bit of where we're at. You can kind of see we're about halfway through the class. We are sluggish through chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. We'll spend more time in those chapters too. And then you can see we'll cover the last five chapters in five five sessions. So we'll be covering that material in a, a lot quicker pace. And really the whole class is an overview kind of look that hopefully we we dive down deep and at points, but by necessity we can't get too too in depth. Okay, but why don't we why don't we pray and then and then we'll we'll dive in. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning once again for our salvation and the fact that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and sent him to accomplish our redemption. We trust wholly in his perfect human life, his substitutionary and atoning death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection for our victory and eternal life. And we thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to bring us from death to life, to grant us saving faith and repentance through the gospel and to sanctify our hearts and unite us to Christ and enrich us with every blessing in Him. We give you all the credit and glory for our salvation because we know that you have done it all from first to last. And again, as we come to worship you, we know we have every reason to do so. We are the community of your covenant people and that you are the center of our lives and you are worthy of all glory as the one true God and creator. But we especially give you our hearts and worship because we are your redeemed people and we look back upon the mighty work of redemption that you have done and we give you praise for that as well. And we Pray for this morning as we are going like Mary to sit at the feet of Christ and learn through the word. We pray that you would teach and instruct us, that you would convict and encourage us, that you would wash us with the water of your word, sanctify us with its truth. And Lord, we pray for the Spirit's work in our hearts to not only understand, but to accept what you teach in it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys. Well, you can see the text there. Um, Just a little bit of review. The first five chapters of the book, the gospel that Paul preaches is that unrighteous people can be saved from God's wrath by receiving the gift of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's really the focus of the first five chapters. Chapters 6 and 7. Uh, focus on the fact that those who receive the gift of justification by faith also receive other blessings as well, including new spiritual life by which they now serve God instead of sin. And then as you move into chapter 8, continuing on the theme of chapters 6 and 7, the other blessings we receive, he also he focuses upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us and how he serves as a foretaste of the resurrection life that we will one day inherit in the new creation and upon the complete certainty of that event, that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. 
And then as we move into chapter 9, just thinking about where we've come so far, he's really addressing the issue of widespread Jewish unbelief. And he explains in this section that we've looked at so far that the unbelief of so many Jews, which obviously we see in the Gospels, we see in the epistles as well. The Jews, in fact, were the chief persecutors of the Christian community in the beginning until Rome sort of took that role in the later centuries. But this widespread unbelief on the part of so many Jews does not negate God's promises to Israel because God never gave his promises to all Israelites, but to some chosen by him according to grace, apart from any qualification in them. And Paul explains that that's not unfair that he do that because God has the right to save or to judge his creatures. So that's sort of where we've come. And that you remember, if you you want to jog your memory as to how he argues this way, he goes back and points out that God chose one descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and not Ishmael. And then Jacob and not Esau. And he shows that it's always been some of the physical descendants of Abraham and of later on of the nation of Israel, not all of them. And you could see how that continues on throughout Israel's history, right? There's, there's always a, a, a remnant of believing Israelites, but the vast majority of Israelites, when they died, where were they going? Not heaven, right? Because they were wicked, unbelieving, idolatrous, immoral. Um, they had no faith. And so... In some ways, it really shouldn't surprise us what he's saying about the the unbelief of the Jews. Now, today, we're moving into Romans 9, 24 through 10, 4. And I want to summarize this section to begin with this way. That those whom God has chosen to save includes, he says, both Jews and Gentiles, as was foretold in the Old Testament, And he makes a a very strong switch in this text from speaking about why some people were saved and not others from the perspective of God's sovereignty, his sovereign choice. That's why, right? And and that is the ultimate reason. But in this text, you're going to see he switches to speaking about the human responsibility side of that equation. So you could also say, Why are some saved and not others? You could say, because God has chosen some and not others. But you could also say, from the perspective of human responsibility, some are saved and not others because some believed and others didn't, right? And we're going to see that he, he flips the switch and begins speaking about the unbelief of so many Jews from the perspective of human responsibility. And, he, and he's going to argue that Some Gentiles were saved because they were willing to be justified by faith or to receive God's righteousness as a gift by faith. While many Jews were not because they insisted on being justified by their own works. Okay, so that's where we're headed in this section. So we're sort of, we're going to follow up the section that we've been in and then there's going to be a sort of a switch And he's going to begin talking about these things going forward. Okay, so let's begin by reading the first part of our 
Our section, would someone read these verses, verses 24 through 26 for me? Romans 9, 24 through 26. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he said in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, thank you. Now, verse 22, if we go back to two verses, verses 22 through 23, This provides very important context, doesn't it? And here, you remember that he'd been talking about God's right as the potter, the creator, over his clay, over his creatures, that's us. And he says in verse 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then you have in your, some of your Bibles in the English standard version, there's a dash. So it's like even us. And so immediately you realize the, the even us is referring to back to vessels of mercy prepared for glory, right? That's because that's what he just been talking about. So he's saying God has prepared, you know, chosen vessels of mercy, prepared beforehand for glory, even us, right? And so that's going to provide an important context there. And so let me summarize these verses. The vessels of mercy, which God predestined, prepared beforehand for glory, consists of both some Jews, and some Gentiles. And he argues that that fulfills the prophecies in Hosea, Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. Now remember, the entire section, 9 through 11, is really meant to explain the widespread unbelief of so many ethnic Israelites, so many Jews. But, you know, you can't really talk about that without talking about the, the closely related subject of so many ethnic Gentiles being saved and believing, right? The two sort of go hand in hand. And so at this particular juncture, he brings in the Gentiles into the equation. He, and he, he'd been, so he'd been saying, uh, God has chosen some Vessels of mercy, he calls them, prepared or predestined for glory, which, you know, if you read chapter 8, you know what he talks, what he's talking about when he says prepared for glory, because he'd been talking about it. Um, you remember, if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him, right? And then he explains what that glorified means. He talks about the new creation. This creation is groaning until now, waiting for that time when It will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And we too will be set free through the redemption of our body. So prepared for glory means prepared for resurrection life in the new creation. So vessels of mercy prepared for beforehand for glory. That is predestined for glory. This group consists of some Jews, not all Jews. That's his argument. God's chosen some. Then he argues, and some Gentiles too. 
And he argues that this fulfills the prophecies of Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. Okay, so that's, that's the summary of these verses. Now, let's start with verse 24. Notice, even us, so these vessels of mercy include even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, if you're thinking like, so who is he, who is he writing this letter to? The church in Rome, churches in Rome. Are those churches all Jews? No. No? Some Gentiles, some Jews. So when he says, even us, whom he has called, he's bringing this whole argument out of the abstract and personalizing it. Hey, we Christians, both me writing to you and you Christians in Rome, in the churches of Rome, both Jew and Gentile, we are those vessels of mercy which God has predestined for glory. And think of it. These vessels of mercy, if they include us, they include both Jews and Gentiles. So, I think, obviously, when he's talking about vessels of mercy, predestined for glory, we're talking about Christians, uh, believers in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. Now, when he says called here, whom he has called, one thing you got to realize about Paul, in other parts of the New Testament, the language of calling can have largely, when in context like this, it could have two meanings, two possible meanings. One is the general gospel call, right? That God calls every sinner to belief in Christ, right? So, and that call is indiscriminate, goes out to everyone. So that's what we call the general call of the gospel. However, there's also a Sometimes the word call can refer to the more e- the effectual call when God, through the gospel, actually calls a sinner effectually in such a way by his power that they are drawn to faith in Christ, right? So that's what we call a general call and an effectual call. They both occur through the gospel, right? But a general call can be rejected. Right? And often is. So it just bounces off the brain. We hear it, but we don't respond. But there is a calling that is accompanied by his power, such that when a person hears the gospel, their hearts are melted down. Right? That's that Ezekiel 36. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. Right? So there's a call where Jesus summons his elect in such a way, by His power, that they respond, right? That's what we call the effectual call. And we've all experienced it if we're a believer. And maybe, for many years, you experienced the general call. Bing, bing, and it just bounced off your brain. And then all of a sudden, almost inexplicably, you experienced the effectual call, where God said, no, this time, you will come, right? You will respond. He grants you faith and repentance, because he regenerates your heart so that you you see for the first time and you respond. So you remember that scene in Acts 16 where Paul goes down to the river and preaches to uh, a group of women who are praying there. And it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to, to respond to the things that Paul was saying. That's what we're talking about. An effectual call. Now, in 
Paul's epistles, what you will see is that he, I believe, exclusively uses the language of calling to refer to the effectual call. So it's always we Christians who have been called and we are called into fellowship with Christ. We are called in a, in a way that we will respond, that we have responded without exception, right? So Paul, whereas in the gospel, you see that, afraid, that verse like, many are called, but few are chosen. But in Paul's epistles, everyone who's called responds. So Paul almost exclusively, I can't think of an instance when he doesn't, use the language of calling to refer to this effectual call. So that's what's going on here, right? Even us whom he has called effectually, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, right? Okay, you get to verses 25 and 26. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, and then he cites Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And then he cites, so that's Hosea 2.23, then he cites Hosea 1.10. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Okay, now, you can see my yellow highlighter, which means a slide is coming next, in which I'm going to dive a little bit more deeply into these prophecies. But for now, let's just say that God's choice to save uh, a remnant of both Jews and Gentiles, right? It's some Jews and some Gentiles, not all, by effectually calling them to Christ through the gospel. He's saying this fulfilled... Two prophecies from Hosea, Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. And I think that we could see that this fulfillment comes in two ways. Number one, God's promise to remarry Israel. And we'll look at these, you'll see how this plays out in Hosea. His promise to remarry Israel after he had sent them away, sent Israel away into exile for her unfaithfulness, her spiritual adultery against him. Do you guys remember that storyline, right? God's promise to remarry Israel in the future after he put her away for unfaithfulness is fulfilled to a remnant of Israelites in Christ. In other words, he had said, in the future, I will bring you back to me. I will betroth you to myself again. I will restore you, right? Even though you've been a harlotrous wife. And you remember how the story of Hosea and Gomer is a living, breathing illustration of that, right? Well, this prophecy that he would do this in the future, Paul's saying, this is fulfilled in this. Except, on one level, you say, yeah, it's fulfilled to a remnant of Jews. Some Jews who were chosen beforehand to be vessels of mercy, right? So, it was made to Israelites in the past. And in one sense, that promise is being fulfilled now in the church to a remnant of believing Jews whom he called But we also see that he's using these prophecies to explain the inclusion of Gentiles as well. And you can kind of see why, right? Those who were not my people, right? I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And and again here, where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So God's promise to take people who were not his and make them his covenant people, though that was originally made to Israel, 
it finds its ultimate expression and an even more profound fulfillment, if you will, in the inclusion of Gentiles into the church as well, right? Along with the remnant of believing Jews, the prophecy is fulfilled in them, but also even more when he takes people who really weren't his people and enfolds them in as well. So a remnant of believing Jews and a remnant of believing Gentiles both experience the fulfillment of these prophecies in slightly different ways, right? Israel was not my people in that they had been put away from God for their adultery and then restored. Gentiles, because they were never his people in the first place, and they're enfolded in as well. Okay? So, I know you may have some questions about that, but let me just first see if we can answer them preemptively by going to this slide. So, I want to dive a little deeper into how Paul is using these two prophecies. because, And we need to go back and look here. So if you will go back to Hosea chapter 1. And um, what I want to do is I want to read Hosea 1, 2 through 11. One of the prophecies that he cites is in this little section here. So let's read together. This is the prophecy of Hosea, who ministered in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So that's the context. He says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, nor forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be, so now in the future, like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay, now, so... First of all here, when the prophetess has this child and God says, name her, not my people, why does he say that? Why is the child named not my people? Because they turn away from it. Yeah, and who is it referring to, not my people? Israel. Israel, right? Israel was the covenant people of God. But after years and years of blatant adultery against God, breaking the old covenant, God said, name this child not my people because Israel will be called, will not be my people. 
What's he referring to? He's going to send them away into exile, right? First to the Assyrians and then later through the, through the Babylonians in the southern kingdom. It's as if he's divorcing them for their adultery, putting them away for, for their adultery. In fact, in the prophet Jeremiah, he uses that language in Isaiah as well, um, as if he's putting them away like a harlotrous spouse and saying, no longer my people, no longer will you receive mercy. So this is Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness. You go to chapter 2, and you get down to verses 14 through, we'll read through 23. So the second prophecy he cites is in verse 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So who's he talking about here? Israel, Israel, right? And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord. So, you see, this is the classic prophetic language. In that day, right? There's a time coming in the future when I will restore my people, right? The one who I said, not my people. The one who I called Lo-Ami, no mercy, I'm going to restore her, right? I'm going to allure to me, her to me again. I'll speak tenderly to her, whereas I had judged her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. No longer are you going to worship idols. You're going to worship me. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Ah, what does that remind you of? You shall know the Lord. Another set of prophecies. Jeremiah 31, right? A new covenant. So you see, I will betroth you to me again. I will make, take, enter into a new covenant with you and you shall be faithful and you shall know the Lord. So this is speaking of a future day of redemption that it's speaking of the same event that Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 talk about. The, the, the redemption that would come through the Messiah that would include a new covenant. Well, like, now they'll call him my husband and because he had allured them and taken them back, and now they would be faithful to him, right? In this new covenant, because they would truly know him. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, And he shall say, you are my God, right? So the context of this is Israel, right? Israel had been sent away for their adulteries. And God said, not my people, not mercy. But in this future time of redemption, there will be a new covenant with them. And he will betroth them to himself again. He will make them faithful and he'll reverse the judgment. Israel had been called no mercy. Now they'll be called Mercy, right? And they have been called not my people, and now they'll be called my people again.
But the interesting thing about it is that the primary object of these prophecies is the nation of Israel, right? But Paul uses them in such a way that it seems like he's talking about Gentiles, right? Because <laughs> he says, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And then he cites these prophecies, which said, not my people, to people, not mercy, uh, to mercy, right? So, he seems to be citing these Old Testament texts to, to substantiate his point in verse 24, that the human beings God has chosen God has called are not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. So what does this prophecy have to do with Gentile inclusion? In the original context, the two texts applied to Israel, whom God had called not my people when he judged them, sent her away for their unfaithfulness, and would once again be called my people when he redeemed them or remarried them in a sense. So how do we resolve this? How is Paul using these two texts, right? If they originally applied to Israel in this way. Well, there's generally been several options suggested. One is that some people say, well, it's true. The original prophecy seemed to be about the redemption of Israel in the future. But actually, Paul's revealing here that it's actually, it was always about the Gentiles instead. As if he was talking about the Jews, and then in that moment he sort of switched. And he was really talking about the Gentiles. I don't think that's the way he's using that prophecy. A second option is that Paul in Romans was only using the prophecy to refer to Jews. right? Not only from among the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then he cites those two prophecies, and he's only applying them to the Jews who were vessels of mercy, and not to Gentiles, right? You see how those two options work? But there is a third, and I think this is the right one. Yes, the prophecy originally referred to the redemption of Israel, but this mystery, previously hidden, now revealed by Paul, was that Gentiles would also become part of the new covenant community, right? And they would come to share in all the blessings that the prophets foretold. So, in a mystery, Gentiles come to share in this redemption of Israel that is prophesied in Hosea 2 and Hosea chapter 1. And what's interesting is that the original principle of God taking a people who were not his people and restoring them, that applies to the remnant of believing Jews, of course, in a sort of direct way, right? That they really were these old covenant people who had been sent away for their unfaithfulness and now would be restored. But the fact that God brings Gentiles into the equation as well, in their case, that same principle, not my people, my people, right? Not my people, children of the living God, even though it's um, the original prophecy wasn't about them, that principle articulated in that language applies to them in an even greater way, right? Because they really weren't his people. They never were his people. They were wicked Gentiles outside of his covenant community. You know, remember Ephesians chapter 2? Strangers from the covenants of God, without God in the world, but God reconciled you together with His people 
through Christ so that you are one new man. He's saying that principle of not my people becoming my people finds its fullest expression in the inclusion of the Gentiles as well as a remnant of Jews. So I think that's what he's doing. And that helps you to see like he's not misusing these Old Testament prophecies. Because if, you know, when you read them, it sounds good. You think, oh yeah, the inclusion of the Gentiles was predicted in the Old Testament. But that's actually not what those prophecies were originally saying, right? So how is he understanding them? Um, he's, I think he's understanding them in that way, that Gentile peoples have been brought into the, the, covenant, the new covenant community, and they've come to share in the blessings originally promised to Israel. And that principle articulated in those prophecies actually finds an even greater expression in them. If that makes sense. So any questions at this point about those things? Yeah, Ben. So could you say though, like Hosea is, I'm looking at the language in Hosea, it says there will be greater than the sand on the sea, which mm-hmm. is Genesis 17, or Genesis 22, that's Abrahamic covenant language, that mm-hmm. there, the offspring of Israel will be greater than the stars or the, the sand of the sea, which then he goes on and says your offspring, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So I guess, I think this is the same as what you're saying in option three, but I'm yeah. wondering if that is actually, it's not foreign, like it's a different interpretation. It's actually just kind of there in seed form, all the way yeah. back from Genesis, Abrahamic covenant promise that the nations would be blessed. Yeah, I mean, another layer that you could add in here is there is a sense in which the Gentile nations were always part of the offspring to whom the promise belonged, because Paul said to Abraham, you shall be a father of many nations. So, Father of many nations. So, from that perspective, who are the seed of Abraham? Who is he a father of? Not just Israelites, but many nations. So, there's a sense in which Paul at times does argue that way as well that, you know, the true offspring to whom the promise belonged were not just ethnic Israelites or physical descendants, you might say, but also. People from every nation. And that's, you know, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So, yeah, I, I do think that that is another layer you could add into here. But the fact that he's sort of focusing on Jews in this passage, you know, I think, I, I, I do think that, you know, he does say not only from among the Jews. So he's saying, here, there's a remnant of Jews that are experiencing this fulfillment. And then the Gentiles are brought in as well. And this principle is applied not just to the Jews who were unfaithful, but now even more to this group of Gentiles as well. Any other questions or comments? I, I was going to say, my. I had a friend who, when he was a seminary, told me, well, see, Paul misquotes the Old Testament, mm-hmm. pulls it out of context. But, and I think this might be one of the passages where people say that. But you there, can see that it isn't really. He's just using it in a new way. I think that something has happened in evangelicalism of late, and that is that, so it's always been the case that if you go back and you look at the original context of the text cite the Old Testament citations of that you see in the New, you say, okay, it makes sense like when he quotes it. And then you go back and you look at the original. Oftentimes it can seem like there's a tension. 
it can seem like, wait, 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 that's not, he's using it in a way that doesn't seem to fit its original meaning. And liberal scholars loved to point that out and say, see, the Bible has errors in it. And the, the New Testament writers were just misusing the Old Testament. Evangelical commentators would often say things like, we don't know how, but we know they're inspired, and so they're, they used it right. We don't know exactly how. What's happened of late is that there's been a lot more work done, especially in the Reformed tradition, uh, but outside of it as well, going back and re-looking at this matter of the New Testament use of the Old and really taking a deeper dive into, you know, how is the New Testament using these texts? What, what is the meaning in their context? And, and how is the New Testament using it? Realizing, wow, there's actually a, a much deeper understanding. So if you just look at it superficially, it might look like they're misusing. But actually, when you examine the the use of the, the Old Testament in its larger context and really look at how the New Testament understands these prophecies as being fulfilled in the New, you realize, whoa, it's not that they are misusing it. It's that they were understanding the Old Testament in a much more profound way than the sort of superficial way that we've often looked at it. <laughs> and so I have a, a large volume like on my uh, shelf that's called the a Commentary on the New Testament use of the Old. And they go through all the Old Testament allusions, citations, and develop in great depth what is going on here. And that has been a, a big help, you know, because it can be a stumbling block when you go back and look at the original and you say, that doesn't seem right, you know. And I think, you know, if you think about it, you see even in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, the resurrected Christ talking to his disciples about the Old Testament, right? And how it was fulfilled in him. So you say, well, how are they understanding these texts this way? Well, they did have like 40 days of appearances of the risen Christ and even instruction, lengthy instruction in how the Old Testament was pointing forward to men. We don't know what all those conversations look like, but there's not a mystery here as to why these fishermen guys went from being largely misguided about their understanding of the Old Testament to now like boldly preaching the gospel from various Old Testament texts. It seems that it's like the lights were turned on, you know, not only by the Holy Spirit, but also by Christ himself and his instruction. That's so. Well, yeah, and the Holy Spirit, you know, he makes the definitive difference. You know, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3 about the Jews reading Moses and a veil lies over their heart. And then he talks about us having the veil lifted when we read. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about how we used to view Christ according to the flesh. And then he says, now we view him thus no longer. So 
conversion and the regeneration of the heart by the Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit, that's what allows you to read Moses, read the Old Testament with new eyes to see Christ as he is. So, you know, even today, um, I think that's what we pray for our Jewish friends, for instance, that they would read the Old Testament and have their, the eyes of their hearts open, the veil lifted, to see that Jesus is the Christ, right? <laughs> okay, I, we've got to move on because um, Ben's already smirking at me like, you are never going to get through this. <laughs> All right, someone read uh, verses 27 through 29. You'd be surprised what I can do, Ben. <laughs> I don't even know if that's really what he's thinking. But All right, can someone read verses 27 through 29? And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay, so here, you know, in the in the previous verses. He had brought the Gentiles in and quoted Hosea. But remember that the overall theme is the unbelief, explaining the unbelief of so many Jews. Here, he's focusing in on the fact that God chose only some Israelites. I think in this context, some Jews to be vessels of mercy who were prepared beforehand for glory, while others are vessels of wrath. Other Jews are vessels of wrath destined for destruction. He's saying, look, this is nothing new. Essentially, this is was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And he's tapping into a, a theme that is there. If you read, if you go back and you read the prophets again, right? And you have this mind for what does it say? Okay, you got, you got so many Jews throughout history. You got and when you look at the old covenant community, all the way up to the time of Jesus, it's always been that there, were, there was widespread unbelief, right? And when God promised a restoration, a redemption for Israel, did he ever say that it was for every single Israelite? No, there was always a theme of a remnant, right? A remnant whom he would restore, And so here he's tapping into that remnant theme that's there throughout the prophets. And he's saying, look, God's choice of some Israelites that we see in our day, right, is to be vessels of mercy. While so many others are left in unbelief and perish in God's judgment, that's something that was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. And he cites two passages from Isaiah's oracles, Isaiah 10 22 through 23, and Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. So, these, the citations of Hosea had to do with God saving both Jews and Gentiles. The citations from Isaiah establish why God chose only some Israelites and not others. Okay? So, the first, 27b through 28, the first citation... Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Now, this is an interesting text because 
The first part of chapter 10 of Isaiah is all about God raising up the nation of Assyria like his war club to demolish the northern kingdom of Israel. And then you get to verse 22 in Isaiah 10, and he talks about a future day of redemption after his judgment, right? In this section, after talking about God's judgment through Assyria, he then says in verses 22 and following, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now, like many passages, you have a near-term destruction, the destruction of the northern kingdom through the through Assyria, and then right after it, right next to it, you have a promise of the return of a remnant, except it says the return of the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, and then a decree of destruction in the midst of all the earth. And so you think, okay, well, that seems like universal judgment and a redemption of Israel to God. So what is often happens in the, in the Old Testament is that prophecies are set side by side that actually have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. It's what we call prophetic perspective. So right after a judgment oracle that's actually going to be fulfilled through the Assyrians, he seems to then speak forward to a, the future redemption of Israel. And he says, only a remnant of them will be saved from this judgment of God that's decreed for the whole earth, right? And he, and he points out, look, there's going to be a, even if there's a, the number of Israelites, ethnic Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return to God and be saved. And then the second citation is Isaiah 1.9, which that's the first chapter of Isaiah, And it says, so he says this, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In this chapter, the prophet is like looking back. He seems to be looking back on the whole history of Israel to that point, you know, to the days of Isaiah, who lived during the reigns of Hezekiah and Ahaz, etc. And he's saying, look, We deserve to be completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah for our sins, right? And you say, yeah, I know what you're talking about because we've read the history of Israel, right? But God mercifully left us some offspring. And if he didn't do that, there'd be none of us left, right? So in that context, it doesn't seem to be a prophecy about the future, but rather just establishing a principle, that God has never preserved all of Israel from perishing in his judgment, but has always preserved a remnant, right? And that's why they're still there. And so Paul's basically citing these two prophecies, one of which may refer to the future redemption of Israel, one of which looks back and he's establishing a principle. It's always been a remnant. Never all, always some. So in our day, as we look out on the church, he says, and we see so many Jews left unbelieving and only some believing. He's saying, nothing new. That's always been the case. Always some, never all. And by the way, the some is not because they were better. We all (laughs) deserve judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's preserved a remnant. Okay, verses 30 through 33. We really got a hustle here, so I'm going to read this. Verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, let me summarize this. Paul now turns to explain the widespread Jewish unbelief in terms of human responsibility. Right? This is the, the switch I mentioned. He'd been talking about it in terms of God's sovereignty, his divine choice of some and not others. Now he switches and he says, and we could also look at it from this perspective, from the perspective of human responsibility. From this perspective, most Jews had not been justified, had not been saved. I use those two interchangeably because that's, I'm, he's just looking back to the first five chapters of the book, right? The power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what is that salvation? It is receiving a righteousness from God when you were unrighteous and deserved God's wrath. So he's talking about justification by faith, which saves you from the wrath of God, right? So he's saying most Jews had not been justified, had not been saved, while many Gentiles had, because most Jews had tried to attain it, salvation, by keeping the law, while Gentiles received it by faith. So if you look through this, verse 30a, what shall we say then? He's basically looking back on what he had said about God saving a remnant of Jews as well as a remnant of Gentiles. And he's indicating there are further implications of this. Um, that further implications of this fact that only some Jews along with some Gentiles have been saved. When you look at verses 30 through 32, this section here. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Okay, now I want to stop there. See what he's saying? He's providing an explanation from a human perspective as to why only some Jews and many Gentiles have ended up being saved through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, right? Seeing many Gentiles who weren't even seeking righteousness from God. They weren't trying to be righteous before God, were they? They were just going about their pagan business. He's saying many, so many of them ended up receiving righteousness, being justified. Why? Because they were willing to receive it as a gift, Right? A righteousness that is by faith. They've attained what they weren't seeking. A righteousness that is by faith. Why? Because they, they received it by faith. Whereas most Jews had not received this righteousness because they were trying to attain righteousness by their own works, by their law keeping. And we know that's impossible. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified, right? Because... Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's chapter 3, verse 20. So, 
The language here is confusing, and I have a whole interpretation slide that we're not going to be able to get to, but he says, Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. I think this is referring to the old covenant law, but he's just making the point that they were looking to the law to provide something for them that it never was intended to provide. They were looking for a law that would allow them to establish their own righteousness by keeping it, right? So that was the old covenant law and all the Jewish traditions. And so there, you can see what he's saying. He's saying the law was never meant for that, but they were looking for a law that would give them their own righteousness, right? And you look at the Pharisees and you say, oh yeah, I know what they're talking about, right? So they were seeking a righteousness for God, but they never attained it because they wouldn't receive it by faith. But they were looking for a law that they were trying to establish their own righteousness based on their own works. And you say, yeah, that makes sense. If you've read the four Gospels, you know what he's talking about, right? (laughs) There's nothing strange there. The last section As it is written, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now this word stumbling here, it it could also be translated offended. So stumbling, when you stumble over something, it leads you to fall, right? So the idea is ruin. But it also has the idea of being, how did they stumble? They stumbled by being offended by a rock of offense, right? And you can see what he's saying. Most Jews were offended by Jesus. They stumbled over him to their ruin, as the prophet had said, right? Because if you look in the context here, he's clearly talking about the Messiah. He says, he talks about establishing a a chief cornerstone, And then he says here that that stone would be one over which Zion would stumble. So many Jews stumbled over Jesus. They were offended by Jesus because he said, that's a typo, he said, your works won't justify you, right? Your whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, unclean on the inside. And he insisted that they would be saved simply by faith in him. So he had the gall to go to the tax collectors and the sinners and the Samaritan woman and say, just believe in me and you'll be saved. And to say to the Pharisees, your righteousness won't save you, right? And that offended them. What do you mean my righteousness won't save me, right? Do you remember the tax collector and the Pharisee? He says, Lord, I'm glad that I'm not like this man. I do all these things. And the publican said, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. And he said, that man went home justified, right? Instead of the other. That's what he's talking about here. So many Jews, they were looking for a righteousness, but they never got it because they wanted to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. Many Gentiles weren't even looking for a righteousness, but they received it because they would receive it simply as a gift by faith. All right? Go through that. This is the last section here. Brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Lest his most recent explanation for Jewish unbelief be misinterpreted, 
Paul reiterates his desire for the Jews to be saved and further explains why it hasn't happened, right? So you remember chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, where he said, Oh, look, I promise you, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. I have sorrow over the unbelief of the Jews. I would be willing to be cursed for if they could be saved. He reiterates that here. Why? He has to keep doing that because you could read what he's saying as if he were anti-Jewish, if he didn't care about them, right? But no, he does care. And notice, we are talking about salvation here when we talk about all these things. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So by the way, Paul has first-hand experience of this. He was a Jew, a Pharisee, who had a zeal for God. In fact, he says in Galatians 1.12, I exceeded all my contemporaries in zeal. Right? He was out there trying to kill as many and imprison as many Christians as he could, thinking he was doing the right thing. And he's saying, I know that zeal that they have for God, but it's misguided, right? It's not according to knowledge. And he's saying, verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you see, there it is again. Their zeal for God was misguided because they didn't know that God justified by faith and instead they were seeking to justify themselves by their own works. And so when the gospel comes along and says, no, you can be justified by faith through God's grace apart from your works, they resisted it, right? Because they were committed to self-justification. So they had a zeal for God, but it was misguided because of their commitment to justifying themselves through their own works. And then finally, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I just want to, I was going to go into depth here, but obviously I've made a hash of this whole lesson. But listen, you've read enough of the New Testament, you think of the, the, the book of Hebrews, or even what Sam has been talking about in Colossians chapter 2, and you realize, okay, when he says, Christ is the end of the law, the word there is actually telos. It can mean termination point, or it can mean fulfillment. And really, there's a sense in which all that's true, right? The whole Old Testament law was leading to Christ, Right? Paul said the law was a tutor until Christ came. He was the conclusion point at which the old covenant and its law would be come to an end and a new covenant would be established. He was also the one to which it all pointed. You know, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So all of the feasts and all the sacrifices and, and, and the ceremonies of the Old Testament were all pointing toward him. He's the great sacrifice. He's the great priest. He's the true temple. You know, he's the, the righteous Israelite who keeps every command to its jot and tittle, etc., etc., right? So he's the conclusion point. He's the fulfillment. And when he comes, the Old Covenant is done away with, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews said. He said, now that the new covenant has come, the old is made obsolete and is passing away. The end of Hebrews 8. 
So yes, he's the conclusion of the law. He's the one who fulfills the old covenant law. And when he arrives, the old covenant law becomes obsolete and it's over. It's the end. And the new covenant comes. Now that doesn't mean that the old covenant law has no place in the lives of believers. But what it means is that the old covenant as a covenant and the law as a covenant law have come to an end. And now we are have a new covenant relationship with God in Christ. And so that's what he's saying. Look, it's so sad. All the Jews, so many Jews, they, they were, they're looking to the law as a means to gaining righteousness. And they don't realize that Christ is the end of the law. The fulfillment and its termination, which makes Jewish unbelief that much sadder. Do you see? That's what he's saying. But he grieves over this. Let me leave you with some applications. Once again, we see that saving mercy is never granted on the basis of mere physical descent. If you haven't gotten that point yet from this, then you're missing it. Salvation is always given by grace to sinners who deserve only judgment. We, we, would, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? If it weren't that he preserved a remnant. God's grace is magnified by the choice of some Gentiles to receive the promised salvation along with some Jews. Not my people. My people. While God is sovereign over who is saved and who isn't, we also see here that man is still responsible for whether they believe in Christ. Right? So if you say, well, why are some people not saved? You could say, well, because of God's sovereign choice and because they refuse to believe. Both are true, right? Also, if you are trying to establish your own righteousness before God by works, you know, Jerry Bridges calls it the performance treadmill that we can sometimes get back on (laughs) and thinking that we maintain our relationship with God by our works. Saying, look, you're not going to be able to to do that and you, you won't be able to receive or we could say as believers really enjoy the gift of justification by faith. And then finally, thinking you can be justified by works will end up making you resistant to and offended by Jesus Christ. It's a sober warning, isn't it? That's why when you talk to an unbeliever, you have to tell them, here's the gospel. You can be saved by grace through faith apart from where works. But in order to receive it, you got to let go of any attempt to establish your own righteousness before God. You could say, you got to say, all my works are worthless in this. All Christ or nothing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this whirlwind trip through this passage. We pray that at least we will have gained a grasp of it and we pray that it would sink into our hearts and renew our minds, transform our lives. We pray that you would really help us to not only understand what it says, but take it to heart. And uh, Lord, that we would have the same zeal for the salvation of lost of the lost that Paul had for his uh, fellow Jews, that we'd grieve over those who are perishing, but we'd also have the humility to acknowledge that you show mercy to whom you have mercy, and that salvation is according to your purpose of election. That it does not depend on the man who wills or runs ultimately. And yet at the same time, Lord, that we'd be able to acknowledge the responsibility that we have as human beings to believe. And that, that we might be urgent to call people 
to believe and trust in Christ alone. And uh, so, Father, help us to hold all of these things in our head, these biblical truths together, and to really have the wisdom that comes from that. I pray for the rest of our time this morning that you would bless it, and that it would be a rich and full day of worship. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.